0: Hello, Left Fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the Best Ever Conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with passive investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate, limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back-to-back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with left-field investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com/bec and we will see you at Passive Investing with Leftfield Investors at the BEC. Are you looking for a way to invest at in a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, Leftfield Investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out.
1: 90% of people don't read the PPM and 95% don't do deep dive due diligence. My friends, This is why you need to listen to my friend, Jim Peiffer, and go out and do the deep dive due diligence. Doesn't seem like it's that important when the tide's rising and everybody's happy, but when the tide's going out and people are starting to swim naked as Warren Buffett says, you don't wanna be one of those and you definitely don't wanna be investing with one of those guys. Hello,
0: left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go.
1: This is Chris Miles, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
0: I am thrilled today to have Paul Moore with us. He is the founder and managing partner of Wellings Capital, a real estate private equity firm. He's the author of several books, a regular contributor to Bigger Pockets and the Real Estate Guys radio show, and a guest on our show for a record-tying third time. So check him out. (laughs) <laughs> check him out in previous episodes 24 and 81 they were uh tw- i think 2021 2022 and now we're hitting it up for 2023 so we just got it in at the end here paul welcome yeah. again to the path oh, from left field podcast
1: so great to be here thank you so much jim i hope we have some fun today
0: oh i'm sure we will we did the last couple of times so The first question I always ask is about your journey. And I understand you, we've already covered this in episodes 24 and 81, but we want to, in case we have new listeners, we want to do that again, but maybe give a little bit of an abridged version so we can uh, then just dive right into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I started out with an engineering degree, which was a huge mistake. Uh, Then I got an MBA at Ohio State, which was not a mistake. Uh, And then, yes, that's right. And um, anyway, uh, I... Uh, I worked at Ford Motor Company five years, had my own company five years, sold it to a company from Columbus. In fact, they were a publicly traded company in 97. Thought I was a full-time investor and I was more of a full-time speculator. I didn't know the difference, made tons of mistakes, and that helped me a lot when I started my podcast called How to Lose Money. And uh, we had that show for four years and um, had a lot of fun. Uh, along the way, I became a multifamily syndicator, did a hotel. Um, and then I actually put the brakes on multifamily syndication because I really felt like it was getting out of hand as far as overpopularity, overpriced, over leveraged, all that stuff. And by the way, just to be super clear, that doesn't mean a lot of folks didn't do. a lot of folks did this perfectly. and we still invest heavily in multifamily with the guys who do it perfectly. I was not a good multifamily syndicator. We were not getting the deals they were. We were not getting. We didn't have the the the, you know, property management, asset management. You know, the 80/20 rule says, you know, you want to be in the top 20% of operators and we weren't anywhere near that. So we pulled back and started a fund and we go out and look for those top 20%. We invest heavily with them and they do the heavy lifting. Um so like you said I've written uh three books and I uh, had um we're on our sixth fund now, so that's a quick history.
0: That's awesome. I, w- I want to jump into one thing you said. You said you were a speculator, but you didn't know it. Yeah. What What does that mean? Can you talk? I I mean, I I've kind of finally figured out after you know a lot of years in in finance and real estate that you know I I also used to be a speculator. And now I'm an investor. But I'd love to hear what that means to you. What What do you mean you were a speculator? And how has it changed?
1: yeah, I mean, the quick way of saying it is, uh, speculating or investing is when your principal is generally protected and you've got a chance to make a profit. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a profit. More specifically, I think investing is when the the value of the asset and the more more importantly, the cash flow from the asset determines the price, okay? As opposed to speculating, where it could be anybody's guess what the value is, it's just the greater fool theory, you know, musical chairs, whatever you want to call it. And if you think back 25, 25 years to the dot-com bubble, you know, everybody or the smart investors like Buffett were saying, "This is crazy. I, I'm not going to invest in internet tech stocks. I don't know where the internet will be in 10 years. I will invest in Wrigley's chewing gum because I know how people will be chewing gum in 10 years." And it, People laughed at him, mocked him, said, he's 69 years old. What does he know? He's an old fogey. And uh, of course, he was right. And now he's 93. And people still know he was right about that and a 100 other things over the years.
0: That, that's great. That's a great definition. You know, I've I've kind of come up with my own, and not my own, but how I look at it is, yeah. you know, speculation is where you're buying an asset, usually a paper asset, and then the, hoping later you will find someone else to buy it for more, while investing is where you're investing in something that's going to provide you with cur- a current benefit, usually in the form of cash flow. And then maybe it'll appreciate as well. But I love how you added in that you know investing is where your capital is relatively safe and speculation is where it's not as safe. So I think those are good yeah. distinctions.
1: Thanks, Jim. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really well said what you said as well. So that's, that's great. I love it. I love it. I love it.
0: Um, okay. So now I want to dig in. We're talking about preferred equity today, at least to start out because that's becoming more prevalent and, and people are talking about it. So let's start off, what, what is preferred equity and why do I get it confused with preferred returns?
1: Oh, yes. Well, I'm really glad that you brought it up that way because if, if you're listening right now and you think, oh yeah, I get preferred returns as part of my investment with any number of syndicators or funds, this is not that. This is something completely different. Um, a few weeks ago, multi-housing news had a headline that said preferred equity is pouring into multifamily. The tried and true financing tool is having a resurgence. In fact, two days ago, I talked to a guy in Manhattan and, uh, you know, he, he said, uh, pref equity is the prettiest girl at the dance right now. So today we're going to talk about preferred equity, what it is, what it isn't, what the risks are, what the benefits are, why we're excited about it. Um, pre- preferred returns as part of your investment is just a hurdle rate in other words the the the, the GP or the syndicator or the fund manager says hey uh, in order since you took a risk since i know more about the deal and you brought the capital i'm going to give you the first crack at getting a payout you're going to get a let's say 8% preferred return and then only after you get 8% a year do i get paid as a GP And so that's preferred return. Preferred equity is something totally different. Um, Does that make sense, Jim?
0: Yeah, it it does. And I I, I wanted to come out with that clarity because, you know, it it is confusing. There's so many terms in this industry that are similar, but they mean totally different things. So today we're going to be focusing on preferred equity and what that is, how you invested in all that. So now that we've got the preferred returns out of the way, which I appreciate. Let's. What is preferred equity?
1: So preferred equity, it sits in the middle of the capital stack. So if you can picture at the bottom, uh, imagine a three-part stack, okay? At the bottom of the stack uh, in the senior position uh, is the senior debt. And let's just say, imagine that 60% of the stack, okay? And now imagine, let's jump to the top of the stack. That's common equity. And you would think that would be of the capital stack, 60 to the debt, 40 to the uh, equity. But in these times, you know, it used to be you could get 75% debt and then you only had to raise 25% of the equity. Now the lenders are coming back saying, hey, we only wanna give you 50, 55 or 60% debt and it's harder to raise equity, a lot harder right now. So that's leaving a gap in the middle. So picture our stack with a new gap inserted in the middle. And let's say it's 60% debt, 25% equity, and now you've got this gap, and this gap has to fill that, and that would be 15%. That preferred equity sits in priority ahead of the common equity, but behind the senior debt. Uh, Preferred equity is like debt in that it has monthly payments. It's like debt in the sense that sometimes you can get the operator to sign a personal guarantee or pledge some of their assets, but they don't pledge this asset because the senior lender usually wouldn't you know, allow that. So the senior lender wants to be you know, typically the only lender in the deal. So there's no lien. And so it's like debt in some ways, but it's not as good as debt because it doesn't have a lien on it. Where it's better than debt or different and better, I hope, is um, it's got upside. And so it's equity... It's got uh, debt-like returns, but equity-like upside. Somebody said that. And if you're listening right now and say, this sounds really dangerous, it can be really dangerous if you don't do it right. And it can be really bad for the common equity holders. And uh, hopefully, Jim, I'll remember to circle back to that because I don't want to run out of time here. So um, PREF equity, uh, sitting in the middle of the capital stack, like I said, it gets cash flow. Uh, typically, we're seeing cash flow right now in the range of maybe eight, nine, ten percent, and then it's getting equity-like upside uh, in, the, in terms of maybe four, five, six, seven uh, percent upside. And so, the total returns on some of the pref equity deals right now can be in the range of you know something like fourteen to eighteen percent. And if it's a development deal, you know, ground-up development, much higher in some cases. And um, so it's structured for immediate cash flow, future upside, shorter hold time, higher payment priority, lower downside risk, still receives depreciation tax benefits if they're negotiated. Uh, There's a potential to uh, negotiate management control rights, forced sale rights. You can actually reserve the cash up front. For example, we invested in a deal where we reserved the whole year of cash flow up front. So let's say it was 10% cash flow on a, on a $5 million investment. We took 500,000 cash up front at closing. And we put that in a reserve account uh, that we controlled. And so it's sort of like a lender that takes, you know, they, they, they do cash management. Uh, and you sometimes can negotiate a minimum total return in case you're taken out early by the operator. Uh, the reason it's good for the operator at, at closing is if they have a value-add deal, and they got this gap I mentioned earlier, the operator can somehow sometimes do the value add work and then take the um, take, pay you off and take the pref equity out in say two to three years. And then if they paid for that t- takeout on their own, they own that big piece of equity. Or if it's used, you know, if it's done through a refinance, the whole equity group now instead of getting 25% ownership, now they have, in my example, um, let's see, 40% ownership. And so a lot of benefits to everybody. The risk, of course, is to the common equity people who now are pushed further out in priority. And if things go south, they'll go south faster for the common equity people. And um, so I'll take a breath. What questions do you have, Jim?
0: I got a lot. Um, <laughs> just for just for clarity, when we're talking, you said uh, you're using terms like senior, the debt is senior. That just means in a liquidation event, the the senior debt that's the debt from the lender gets paid first. Then next comes the preferred equity gets paid next, and then comes your regular equity. Is that is that how that works?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, you know the common equity debt, uh, the common equity holders, that, for example, might not get any cash flow. Uh, they certainly won't until the debt and the co- the uh, preferred equity is paid, and that makes you wonder well why would I want to be a common equity holder in this deal well that's something we should talk about i told you there's some risks
0: right and let's talk also about the the lenders now you know 2 years ago they were offering you know 75% ltv loan to value and now you know what you were saying is 50 55 and 60% is more common why why the reduction i know with the interest rates went way up everything's uncertain but the banks the lenders they can lend however much they want, right? Interest rates are higher. Why aren't they lending up to 90%? Yeah,
1: that's funny. Um, Well, uh, great question. Uh, The lender could do that, but they're constrained by the debt service coverage ratio. And the debt service coverage ratio is the net operating income divided by the debt service, and it's typically calculated on a monthly basis. So if the debt payments that's principal and interest are 10,000 and the total operating income for that month is 13,000 that's a 1.3 or 1.3x debt coverage ratio or debt service coverage ratio that's a 30% margin of safety but now let's say in that same deal the interest rates shot up and now the interest debt you know principal and interest payments are 13,000 but the income's still 13000 Well, that's a 1.0 coverage or debt coverage ratio. That's not safe, because if anything goes wrong at all, like reduced occupancy, reduced rents, higher insurance policy, that bank, all of a sudden, I don't see how they're gonna get paid unless somebody comes out of pocket. So that debt service coverage ratio causes the lender to go, okay, we're not gonna loan as much, we're gonna loan less. And of course, there's other reasons, like they would rather be less on the hook when things are going south.
0: okay, so I'm an LP right so I'm typically investing in the in the just the common equity right yeah. So to me, the there's still 75% right is is the number that that is still getting paid before I get paid right because the preferred equity just is is senior to me just like the the regular debt is. So is it important for an LP to know that there's preferred equity to understand the terms of the preferred equity? Or do I just say, eh? It doesn't matter because I'm still in the 25. percent and Everybody else is ahead of me. Whether it's a bank or preferred equity, who cares?
1: Mm, that's a really good question. So think about it. Um, if it was just a bank at 75% LTB, let's say that asset was 10 million, and the bank in the old in the old under the old situation, the bank loans 7.5 million, and now there's two and a half million in equity. Okay, fine. If that goes up to a value of 15 million, okay, then the bank gets paid off seven and a half. Now my two and a half million in equity just tripled to two and a half plus five, so seven and a half million. But if there's a preferred equity in there, and I'm hoping I can do this on the fly without making a fool of myself, let's say there's 50% debt and there's 25% preferred equity and 25% common. Now the preferred equity is gonna get a piece of that profit. So without going into all the numbers, you're not gonna triple your money anymore because the preferred equity is gonna get a lot bigger chunk than the debt would have in the old example. The problem is if the asset value falls, honestly, under either scenario, if you're at 75% debt or 75% debt plus equity, if the asset value falls by 25%, the common equity's wiped out. So the the preferred
0: the LP in the in the common equity right the the typical LP in this situation when there's um preferred equity included the downside is the same and the upside is significantly reduced from as compared to when it's just debt and no no preferred equity
1: Yes that's true in most cases. And my my um compliance person would love for me to say in most cases, because there's probably exceptions that I'm not thinking of. But but think about this. If the lender would have come in that same second deal and said, Okay, we're only gonna loan you five million of the ten, if, if I went out as the operator and got five million in equity and that went up by five million, well, it only double the money. I know it sounds ridiculous because that's great. But right. It triples the money if they're only, you know, there's only 25, 2.25% equity. And so it's the same with this. It's 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 probably better than if they brought in 50% debt and 50% equity. In other words, the less percentage equity there is in a rising value, you're leveraging your profit. And so there is a potential upside. And so all this boils down to this. If you're an LP, and I know that's who I'm speaking to, you're an LP investors. Check it out carefully. Check out the track record of the operator. Check out the value add. Go fly down there or drive and see it. Really check it out yourself and really see if you believe the story of why this is going to go up in value from, let's say, ten to fifteen million in my example. Because if it's not going to go up in value a lot, you may want to you know second guess whether you should invest as an LP in this.
0: Okay. So are there is you you talked about pref equity gets a, a monthly return plus some upside. Are there other types and structures? Like is is all pref equity the same? Is, oh, this is pref equity. Okay, I know exactly what that is, or is it is it different with each with each deal?
1: Yeah. So there's different types of arrangements. It's all negotiable. It's sort of like, you know, that constitutional provision that says, you know, the Constitution says any contract is valid unless it's, you know, with an underage person or an inebriated person or whatever those rules are, But that was supposed to be funny, but I'm not laughing. Anyway, I'm not drunk though. Don't get me wrong. No, okay. Okay. Okay, Cut that. Please delete that. Okay. No, seriously. (laughs) uh, In all seriousness, we can negotiate anything we want. So as a PREF equity uh, provider or recipient, I can negotiate that. So we had one pro, we had one deal where we invested and we said, we believe in this deal, obviously, but we want some extra security. And so the owners, one of the owners had three, no, two of the owners, two brothers had $300 million in net worth. And they literally signed a personal guarantee on the deal. So while we didn't get a lien, I kind of feel like the, you know, personal guarantee. And we verified their net worth independently, Um uh, you know it, it's it was pretty good so we can negotiate anything we want as far as there being different kinds of pref equity i really want listeners to hear this if you're going to invest in pref equity there's one there's development pref equity and that means hey i get a 20% return 12% cash flow or maybe it'd be more like 8% cash flow and 12% upside okay that makes sense but do you really believe in this developer their track record their team Their geography and that they're going to be able to sell it. Even if cap rates go up and rents go down, are they going to be able to sell it for a huge profit? Well, you know, a lot of developers do, and that's why they can afford this. I talked to a developer who's like, I'm making 40, 50% profit, so it's easy for me to pay 20% for a small chunk of Pref equity. Um, A second type is uh, value add acquisition. So we've got development and value add acquisition. And that's the type I like because you know these folks have track records. I could tell you several stories about investing pref equity in deals that have a tremendous amount of upside. Let's say it's a self storage facility that's just so poorly run that there's homeless people living in it. Uh, The rates are only forty one percent of the market rate. This is a true story, as you can tell. Um, There's no marketing or website. There's room for expansion and all all these things. Well, you can see that that thing has a tremendous upside. And so I feel pretty good about as being an L, well, of course, if there's a great operator, and there was. So I feel really good as an LP or a PREF equity provider for that deal. And by the way, that's again a value-add acquisition. The third type is what everybody out there on Twitter is screaming about right now saying, don't do this, and that is rescue capital. Rescue capital is when Uh, The PREF equity person comes in and they're trying to rescue a deal because, let's say there was floating rate debt and they've got to refinance next year or this year or this month, (laughs) and the floating rate debt has caused their debt service coverage ratio to go down from 1.3, the example I used a while ago, down to like 0.7, which is happening all the time right now. And so the PREF equity person comes in and says, look, I want a piece of the upside if it goes well but I will take over and own this asset if it goes poorly. Now, think about that. As the common equity behind that PREF equity, I'm hating that. As the GP, well, I'm not saying they're all thinking this way, but I'm hearing on Twitter, uh, and a lot of people say, look, somebody says, I don't want to have a reputational risk of doing a capital call. I'll just insert private PREF equity in here, kind of quietly. And I mean... So you got to wonder, you know, for those, if if I'm on the LP side of that deal, I'd have to ask myself: Would I rather have a capital call and have the choice of putting the money in, or would I rather have pref equity just put in in front of me? I think I'd rather have the choice and have the capital call. What do you think? It,
0: yeah, I, I guess my question on that would be: um, Is that all in the contract, the PPM, and everything ahead of time, or is this? Like if we're talking about deals that are already already underway, then as an LP, I don't have a choice, right? I mean, there's nothing I could do because I have no control once the deal is, is done. So how do I say, hey, no, no, I don't want that PREF equity. I'd prefer a capital call. When I mean, is, is there something written in the, the private placement memorandum that says that we do have a choice, I guess would be my first question.
1: Yeah, again, that's why it's so important to read your private placement memorandums. Um, Somebody told me that on your podcast, and I I didn't hear it myself, but somebody told me yesterday that on your podcast, somebody said 90% of people don't read the PPM and 95% don't do deep dive due diligence. My friends, this is why you need to listen to my friend, Jim Pfeiffer, and go out And do the deep dive due diligence. Go out and read the PPM. Jim is trying, you know, Jim and Chad and Steve and the whole gang, they're trying to get you to read the PPM, to take care, to go out and check it out yourself. Please do it because this stuff doesn't seem like it's that important when the tide's rising and everybody's happy. But when the tide's going out and people are starting to swim naked, as Warren Buffett says, you don't want to be one of those, and you definitely don't want to be investing with one of those guys. So, Jim, what you're doing for the LP community in America is important. It's critical.
0: Yeah, and and you know, in in a selfish way, I'm I'm doing it for my own investments too because I I was never one of those guys that that dug in and, and read the whole PPM. I would read the the sections I thought were important. But we've just also got a, another operator in our community. Who did a capital call? Which I understand. Capital calls, you know that that happens. It's it, it right. it's not always great, but it's not always as bad as people think. But in this capital call, it was not an option, right? You didn't have the option to be diluted. It is you you do this capital, or there's there's penalties, and mm. nobody had read the PPM and figured that out. And so they now they're just getting the capital call and they're finding out it's mandatory, and that just you know accentuates. There were times when you know, over the last few years, you could just give somebody money and they gave you a bunch more back later, right? right. And you felt like maybe you didn't have to do all this due diligence, but now it, is, it was essential then, but, you know, it was easy to paper over when you're making money. Now, right. you know, you got to read every word of that. I, you're, you're right. And I, I've had conversations where, you know, I wasn't as great at that as I should have been. And so now I'm being a lot more careful because, yeah. and it's not always that the operators are trying to hide something from you, mm-hmm. but maybe this is just the way they do business. And so you need to know that going in. And I would like to know that as well. You know, if the capital calls an option or does the operator have the option to do preferred equity instead? I want to know about that, even if I can't do anything about it um, during the deal. I want to know about that beforehand. So maybe those are questions we should start asking.
1: That's absolutely correct. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong or good or bad, just like you said, it's just good to know. And if you don't like the answer, And you really know in your heart of hearts, or you have a gut feeling, your head is telling you, do the deal, double your money in three years again. But your heart is telling you something's wrong. Follow your gut, follow your heart, because your heart and your gut probably know something's wrong. And I can't, I don't have the science for that, but it's true over and over in investing, I've found. Hi, this is Zach Haptenstahl, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48Equity's multi-family investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest.
0: Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndication to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Pfizer is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a Free 30 day trial now at Pfizer.co. And I want to ask you another question about preferred equity because as you were explaining it, it sounded a little bit like not not totally, but a little bit like bridge debt, right? You're you're kind of getting this this um extra little investment that is that is not intended to be part of the entire deal. It's it's really just to bridge you until you get to a point where you can buy them out speaking from the operator's perspective so what are the dangers and we talked a little bit about this but as an lp and i want to talk later how do we get in and, and be part of the pref equity because that sounds like a nice place to be but if we're just in the common um you know the, the the common equity what are we looking out for and how do we protect ourselves
1: yeah if you're in the common equity and you do you mean if you've already invested or cons- no, in, in a
0: new one in a new one because if you've already invested you know, you're, you're kind of stuck. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the common equity realm, if PREF equity is an option, you mean, or- Yeah. If,
0: if you there. see a deal and and they're saying, hey, there's going to be PREF equity on this, or you see a deal and they haven't mentioned it, you got to ask about it. And then once you find out it is, what questions are you asking? What is a, oh, I'm not going to be on the common equity because this PREF equity is messing up the deal or vice versa. Oh, okay. The common, the PREF equity is there. I'm comfortable investing in the common because of.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, and this is going to sound like a cop out answer, but I think it really comes down to the operator and their track record and their ability to do what they say. How often have they done this? We've invested with a multifamily syndicator that's, uh, to my knowledge, done 81 tax abated deals, mostly in Texas. Well, when they come out with number 82, if every one of those 81 except one has made money, and that's a a true story, um, I'm going to feel really comfortable that they're going to be able to do what they said, especially if they're estimating their IRRs at, let's say, 12%, but their actual IRRs are much higher. Uh, I'm going to feel really comfortable with that because I believe that operator can pull it off. Uh, Warren Buffett made a decision to invest an enormous amount of money to acquire ABC in 1996, maybe, or maybe it was 89, uh, based on a 15-minute phone call. Why? Because he knew the operator had pulled off one after the other after the other. His name was Tom Murphy. We all get into that now. But the point is, if you know the operator can do it and they've got a valid plan, you can trust that Hey, I think I can do this, this investment. It it's so much more important to have a great operator than a great deal. At least that's my opinion. What do you think, Jim?
0: I I would have agreed with you a year ago, and I, I probably still I still do agree with you, but I want to push back a little bit. Okay. Because I want to ask you like we have an operator that I know in our community, and I don't know the exact number. I think it was it was at least thirty deals. It might have been fifty deals that they did. Um they had a that was their track record. They had an average annual return of 30% on those deals, and they were just crushing it, right? And they were well-respected and did a great job. And this interest rate thing crushed them. Mm-hmm. And, not only that, and, and if it had just been the increase in interest rates at the pace, and that was the problem because they're doing all bridge debt. They were basically apartment flippers, so I get it. Um, I understand the business plan. But they also failed to execute their business plan interest rates aside on some of those deals that they got into before the pandemic, before the interest rate. So those deals should have panned out. So my question is, it's a long wind up to this question, but they had the track record. They had the no like and trust. They had every component, right? Mm -hmm. They had done everything right. And then all of a sudden they didn't. So I know thirty or forty deals isn't eighty. But how do we get confident as LPs when we're investing these people that we completely trust, we've met, we've gone to the properties, we've visited, we've seen the execute business plans. They've had awesome returns for a long time and then they fail, right? How do we protect ourselves? And maybe we don't, but how do yeah. we protect ourselves? Because now a lot of yeah. people, me, you, we're saying, you got to make sure track record and experience. You got to make sure of that. Yeah. Well, we did and it still didn't work.
1: Yep. Yeah. I don't think those deals failed. Well, wait, wait, wait! I, I blew it. I wish you could delete that. But what I meant to say is I don't think those assets failed. I think the deals failed. And so what I would say at the risk of alienating uh, your audience is you gotta look deeper than just the track record. And I know I sound like I'm going back on what I said, but part of looking at that is their business plan. And what I have always wanted and I've been saying this on Bigger Pockets since 2017 or 18. I've been screaming at people: Do not! Um, someday the floating rate debt is going to come back and bite you. And again, I don't want to, uh, you know, alienate anybody, but I, I would say as part of looking at their track record, I'm also going to look at their business plan and say: If you're relying on floating rate debt, that's a risk. That's a risk, especially when interest rates were so historically out of line with um with history. And so I think that's part of it. And I should have said that the first time. But you you were right, a hundred percent right to push back on me. Thank you.
0: No, and, and it, it's hard, right? Because you have to rely on the operator, right? You have to learn to know, like, and trust them. You have to look at their track record and and be able to depend on that. And but you know, sometimes it's just Not going to work out. So my less one of my lessons that I learned for that, my takeaway is, you know, I don't want to go all in with one operator or even close Mm -hmm. to it. Just like I don't want to go all in with one asset class. And we talked about that. We always talk about diversifying by asset class, by market, by operator, all these different things. But you still you see the thirty percent and the sixty deals they did, and you're like, well, maybe I'll just overweight on this operator because they're really killing it. Well, you got to you just got to tread carefully, I think, and and that's you got to look at everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. One thing Buffett talks about, again, is stepping over one-foot hurdles. Uh, another way of looking at that is stop, and I'm talking to myself now, I mean that, stop trying to hit home runs, Paul. Try, stop trying to hit grand slams. Just go for singles and doubles. And um, if you do that, you know uh, some of those will be home runs. Some of them will be triples. But if you go for singles and doubles, that might look like going with a self-storage deal that has a twelve percent projected annual return rather than a multifamily ground up development that has a forty percent projected return. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I that is that I wrote that down because that is just that's gold. I mean, we hear it all the time. You know, make sure you're just thinking about the singles and doubles and don't worry about the home runs. But then how often do we chase the home runs? And I think what what I would that the change I'm gonna make to my my personal investing is I'm still gonna chase after the home runs i'm gonna to try to hit eight singles and then one home run rather than four singles and four home runs, right? So yeah. I might still put a few put a, put a little bit of money into that risky deal where they have bridge debt and they have all this stuff that you know the track record's great, but I'm not gonna put as much into it. i'm gonna put more into the reliable stuff, so I think that's that's really great advice and I do want to step back into preferred equity because we're kind of gotten off track on the great conversation. I love this. this is the kind of stuff I love talking about, but I don't want to lose site of preferred equity because it sounds like a neat place to be. I'm an LP, so I just get stuffed into the common equity, right? How do I get into the, um, into the preferred equity situation as a limited partner investor?
1: Okay, so first of all, most investors, I'm sorry to tell you, can't do these on their own. They're, you have to be in the right place, at the right time. You have to be approved by the uh, not only the uh, operator and their broker, But you often have to be approved by the senior lender. And if it's Fannie or Freddie, it's extremely hard to get that done. Um, Most people don't want to invest, say, 3 to $5 million, which is kind of the minimum you'd want to be at, in one deal. Talk about concentration risk. I mean, if you're a huge family office, it's one thing. But if it's an individual LP, you're probably not going to. Um, There's a lot of due diligence involved. There's $30,000, $40,000 of legal structuring involved. We do NOI audits. We do background checks, criminal checks. We even do background checks on the lenders. You know, I don't know if you heard about the big lender. They had the FBI raid them the other day. Um, but um, you know, we don't want to be in a deal where that's happened to them because let's say that lender reemerges as a new lender in 10 years. You know We're going to do a background check on them as well. Um, and so there's a lot involved that didn't answer your question. What it does say is it's going to be really hard to be an individual LP in these deals. Where can you do it? Number one, you can find a preferred equity fund. Now, we don't have one, but there is, um, I, I won't name the name because I'm probably not supposed to give advice, but somebody on Bigger Pockets who's pretty well known in Bigger Pockets has a preferred equity fund. And knowing them, I'm guessing they're going to do really well with it. Second, you can find a preferred equity sidecar deal. And that would be, let's say, Wellings Capital, my company, let's say we're investing $5 million in a deal, but the deal needs $10 million. Well, maybe we'll put out a sidecar and the investors can come into that sidecar into the same terms we are. That might be a way to do it. Um, would there be any other way to be into that? Um, I, I guess the third way is what I already said would be hard, and that would be if you have a whole lot of money and you're a family office or maybe you've got like ten of you and you do a tribe vest model where there's, you know, ten of you at half a million each and you go in for five million, just make sure you have the right attorney to protect you. Those are the only three ways I can think of, Jim.
0: Uh that that's great. I mean, this is something that I think number one, as LP investors, we really need to be focusing on we're the common equity. There's all these other entities probably in the capital stack and preferred equities in there, we need to make sure we understand the terms and how it's set up, correct? I mean, is that is that the main, aside from investing in it, which you've g- given some great ideas for that, how does the LP evaluate this? We talked a, bit, a little bit about it, but is it just making sure you understand the terms and are comfortable with them?
1: Yeah, I would think number one, you want to make sure again, the, the, who you're investing with, it's back to that again, who is the operator, who are you trusting? Like Buffett, with Tom, uh, Tom Murphy. Second, the terms of the deal, the best you can possibly analyze it, analyze it. And then third, I would get a third party who's done it before, like, uh, an attorney who, you know, pay them a thousand dollars to glance through or read through the PPM and say, Hey, what do you see? That's really good. And what do you see? That's concerning here. And so I know a couple thousand dollars, maybe even to that attorney. I know that sounds heavy, but it's sure a lot lighter than losing, you know, a million or five million dollars.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, spending a thousand dollars to to save save fifty is even is even worth yep. it, right? So I think right. that's that's important. And then in the um, in the offering documents and the and the PPM, they will explain or they should explain the pref equity how it works and that it exists, right? So. And, and this is something I would recommend, and maybe you tell me if you agree, when you're, inve- when you're talking to the operator, you should also talk to them and confirm, here's how I'm understanding the PREF equity. Do you agree? Is this correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, the problem is, you know, uh, PREF equity is not new, as I mentioned at the beginning, but it's kind of new lately. In other words, a lot of people might not even really know. You need to verify yourself. If you're talking to an investor relations person, and again on Twitter today, I saw a story where they were talking to an investor relations person. They had no idea, uh, you know. And so, yeah, make sure you verify yourself and with somebody you really trust.
0: Yeah, no, that that's great stuff. Um, anything else? We're about we're about getting to to the time. So, anything else on pref equity that you uh, that you want to say before we uh, wrap up with our last couple questions?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you really believe what I'm saying that, you know, that PREF equity for, not for rescue or not for development in my mind, but for, you know, somewhat safer, Not, I'm not saying they're safe. My compliance person would hate if I said that. But, um, you know, generally well-trodden deals like value-add deals with a clear upside story. If you really believe PREF equity is a great place to be, it's probably not going to be... It's probably going to be a fairly short window. One of our investors was the COO of Citadel, uh, the world's most successful hedge fund, according to the online stuff I read about them. He's no longer with Citadel, but he said that he thinks this is going to be a very short window because to get something that's actually theoretically lower risk and theoretically higher return, that it's, it's so unusual that it's probably not going to last for long. Interesting.
0: All right, so the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you that you like to listen to?
1: Oh, man, can I say LFI? You can say it. I love it, but you got to add to something else too. Okay, great. I would recommend We Study Millionaires, and they've actually got several sub-podcasts, including the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast that's hosted by William Green. William Green wrote what I believe could be the best modern investment book Um, called Richer, Wiser, Happier. I'd love to see you have him on the show. Um, And uh, William Green wrote this book. Uh, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, said it was perhaps, he said it was an immediate classic when it came out two years ago. But um, anyway, he's got a podcast called Richer, Wiser, Happier Podcast. I really recommend that.
0: Awesome. That's fantastic advice. Thank you very much. And if listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about Welling's Capital or or learn more about you or talk PREF equity,
1: what's the best way to get in touch with you? All right. They can get hold of me on Twitter at Paul Moore Invest, or they can go to our website. It's wellingscapital.com, and they can figure out a way to get hold of us there.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Paul. As always, it was great having you on. Third time's a charm. We appreciate you, and we appreciate the support. That you and wellings have given to lfi over the years
1: oh uh, jim thank you so much it's such an honor to be here
0: investing in syndications can be a daunting task wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary how can you be confident in what you're doing steve sue one of the founders of lfi just published a book called avoiding rookie errors as a left field investor 20 lessons learned from 14 years of investing in private syndications this is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy to read book, chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to avoiding rookie errors as a left field investor. If you are a passive investor, you got to read this book. What a great conversation with Paul. I, I just love the dialogue and the back and forth. That was a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things that I thought was pretty cool about Paul is you know, he was a multifamily operator and he recognized that he was not in the top 20% of operators. So he decided that he was going to go find those top 20 operators and make sure they were available uh, for his clients to invest in. So I just think that's a great kind of mindset thing where you're like, hey, I can go find someone who could do this better and and make more money for myself and for my my partners and, and uh, clients. So that's just... I just think it's a, it's a good mindset there that he had. And then the conversation about speculation versus investing, ever since I was a financial advisor, I've really thought of real estate as investing and the stock market and all that stuff as speculation. And Paul really added something because I'm, as I said in the podcast, I'm really thinking investing is you have a current benefit, speculation is where you're buying and open. Someone else buys it from you for more for later. Um, but he put something else in there is that investing is where your capital is safer relative to speculation where your capital isn't safe at all. I think that's just a great added wrinkle in, you know, that is it for real estate, right? Your capital seems safer. Now, it's not always going to be, but in the stock market, you're going up and down on the roller coaster. So I love that added definition. And then talking about private equity, you know, he says debt, it's like debt as far as the returns, but it's got the equity upside. So really, if you're investing in it, if you can find spaces to do it, and, and he said Paul said, it's not not always that easy. But if you can find space to do it, then you're kind of getting the best of both worlds by, by sitting in the middle there. So I really like that. And you know, one of the things he said is you're an LP and you're just in common equity. You do lose some of the upside with, with the uh, preferred equity being in place. So it's important to understand that, recognize it, and analyze it. And that's why it's important to read the PPM. As Paul said, I haven't always been great at that, although he said I was. I haven't been. I'm getting better. Um, but, you know, you really got to make sure that you're at least at the very minimum you're we checking for those things like capital calls and and where you sit in the capital stack and how all that will happen, especially now that private equity or preferred equity is becoming more common. And we talked about looking deeper than the track record, right, because everyone says now, well, you really got to focus on track record and experience. Well, OK, but that still doesn't always save you. So you really have to look at other things, look deeper. Take the time, visit if you can. There's just a lot of things that you need to be doing besides just looking at the tracker and saying, Yep, good to go. And finally, I really loved what he's talked about. Stop trying for the home run. People have been talking about this forever, but you know, when you look at it, what he's saying is you don't need the home run on every deal. In fact, as Paul and I talk, you don't need the home run on hardly any deals. Just go for the singles and doubles, you'll be fine. And if and if you need a little bit extra risk in your life, fine. Go for the home run every once in a while. But I think over the last few years, we were all so used to hitting the home run at every at-bat that we just don't realize that, okay, maybe, maybe you can just be a singles hitter and you'll you'll still make the Hall of Fame. All right, that's all for the baseball references. But what else do you expect? We are left field investors. So again, love talking to Paul. I think that it was going to be a great episode. I'm definitely going to listen to it again because Paul has all kinds of wisdom to share with us. So we appreciate him. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only.